Behold! The sword of power. Excalibur. Welcome to the Oh Gosh, Oh Golly, Oh Wow podcast, the podcast where we talk about the Marvel Comics series Excalibur and nothing but Excalibur every week for 126 plus weeks. This week in episode 22, we're reliving the Dark Phoenix saga all over again in Excalibur number 21, Crusader X. The creative team is Chris Claremont on writing, Chris Wozniak on pencils, Al Milgram on inks, Brad Benkata on colors, Tom Orzachewski on letters, and Terry Kavanaugh on editing. We have won battles against armies, and our one man defeats all my knights. He's a mighty opponent. We are joined this week by a guest who is currently located in the UK, which is surprisingly the first time this has happened on the pod, though it certainly won't be the last. Our guest also happens to be super smart and know a thing or two about comics, and we will introduce his full credentials in a moment. But first, your lovely hosts. I am Dr. Anna Papard. I write and talk about lots of stuff like sex and gender and issues of representation for lots of websites and academic places, including the wonderful comics and culture site Comics XF. I am also the co-host with Andrew of the podcast called Three panel contrast i am also also still kurt wagner's unofficial pr manager and thank goodness because he's being drawn by chris wozniak now and he's gonna need my emotional support also just a little celebration thing it was just announced that my anthology super sex sexuality fantasy and the superhero of which andrew is a contributor has won the prize for best edited collection from the comic studies society that will be public by the time this episode comes out so gotta celebrate our achieves on the pod on my and on anyway. mention for the vision article that's right that's right and <laughs> behold the vision's penis the presence great, of absence you know, in great, great romance episode. tales yeah i got an honorable mention so yeah just raking in the awards over here today <laughs> i'm sure fame and success is just just around the next corner but um anyway mav if you'd like to introduce yourself uh, can I follow that up? I don't know. <laughs> I am the terror that flaps in the night. I am the switch that derails your train. <laughs> I am the neurosis that requires a $500 an hour shrink. I am Darkwing Duck. Or not. <laughs> I am Christopher Maverick. I am the host of Vox Popcast, a academic podca- pseudo-academic podcast of pop culture analysis. I'm a scholar that studies, that also, like Anna, studies sex and race and gender and comics and other pop culture. And I'm, I was going to say, you know, we've got an issue to talk about today. It's, this definitely qualifies as a, as a comic. I'm, we'll have <laughs> yeah. things to say. <laughs> it's we strong. will have things to say. <laughs> we will have things to say. <laughs> Congratulations Neither one on of your our, award. 
Thank you. Thank you. Andrew, if you'd like to say a few words about yourself. I'm Dr. Andrew DeMann. I'm a lecturer at St. Jerome's University on the campus of the University of Waterloo, uh, co-host of Three Panel Contrast, um, contributor to Super Sex. And... Excellent contributor to Super Sex. Yes, definitely. Um, and i um, excited to talk about some high quality comics coloring today. <laughs> that's what I've isolated as the positive to speak about. Okay, awesome. I'd be happy to talk that, about that. Color. That, that. That is true. <laughs> <laughs> we'll talk about it with our very knowledgeable guest, who is Dr. Martin Zeller-Jacques. Welcome to the pod. Uh, hi, thanks, Anna. Um, yeah, I, I, I'm trying to think of my, my funny intro line. Um, <laughs> I don't normally have. I've been. I'll give you. I'll give you. This. I'll give you a little pump up, and you can come back to us. <laughs> oh no! I, I mean, the the one I was going to use was I used to be an academic like all of you until I took an arrow in the knee. Um, <laughs> if anyone's a Skyrim player, um, <laughs> right now actually, excellent. Well, excellent. there you go. <laughs> but uh, well, yeah. Let's tell the pod a little bit about you. So until January of this year, when he took an arrow to the knee, Martin Zeller-Jacques was a senior lecturer in film and media at Queen Margaret University, just in, just outside of Edinburgh. His research focused on serialized narrative form in television, movies, comics, and games. He's published work on film adaptations of superhero comics and gender representations in superhero cinema following this COVID-inspired career change, aka arrow to the knee. Um, he has largely left academia behind and is working as a chef at a small seaside street food shop in North Berwick, Scotland. So this is quite the, so the cool. that is quite the like move. I bet like a lot of people are going to be super jealous of that. If I'm being honest, Martin. Yeah, I mean the I the day to day lived reality of it is uh, I love Scotland. So. Is something a little bit different. Yeah, I mean I I love Scotland too, but I, I was already living in Scotland, so that's not the big change. But uh, but yeah, the 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 getting used to sixty plus hours a week of manual labor and, and oh, dispatching yeah. hundreds of lobsters a week is. Uh, that that's new, uh, but, <laughs> but I am enjoying it. Um, and, oh, and that's good. You know, more more to the point, I I was pretty sure at at the halfway point of the COVID crisis that I I wanted to be done with remote teaching. I was sort of half burned out going into it, and and kind of looked at this long uncertain span ahead and thought, nope, nope, not going to be good for me. So I stayed on part time to to kind of help with the transition, and and then set out on something new. Oh uh, yeah, I I I think everybody that's sort of been a contract academic has their fantasy about what they're starting off on something new thing is, and I won't list mine here, but I have many of them anyway martin let's tell the pod a little bit about you you reached out to us wanting to be on the pod so like i'm assuming that you've read excalibur before but we haven't actually talked about it so are you familiar with the series or is this your first time encountering it um, i'm familiar with the series at this stage but before that i was really primarily familiar with the characters from within the series um, so i was a big nightcrawler fan a big kitty pride fan yes. uh, from a childhood spent kind of excavating little partial artifacts of marvel continuity rather than ever really reading it in, in any kind of intensive way. So like my, my urtext for comic book fandom is a poster in the Albany Public Library of the origin of the Fantastic Four. And it was, it was basically like four pages of splashed up from the comics that told the whole origin story in brief. And, I love that. And, and it was kind of legitimated for me because it was in the library, you know, where my parents sent me to do research for, for term papers and things like that. So, 
obviously it was a, a worthy subject of study. And then it was it was a case of like picking up the odd issue here and there from newsstands or from garage sales. And, and so I never got a whole story when I was reading comics as a kid. I got, you know, the issue where Ilyana gets sucked into limbo by Velasco, but nothing around it. So there was no context for who these people were. Um, and, and so it was just these little gems of characterization, which were, were wonderful and evocative. And it was great listening back to the podcast with you guys. Uh, I think it was a few weeks back. Mav, you were talking about the... The, the kind of Marvel encyclopedia they published uh, in, uh-huh. I think, the early 90s. Official handbook. Uh, the, there you go. The official handbook of the Marvel Universe. I had two issues of that as well, <laughs> oh which I poured over. And, you know, memorized. Do you remember which letters? Uh, I can't remember, but I know Captain Britain was in there. And I was okay. kind of baffled. Like, I knew Captain America was a thing, but who was this Captain Britain guy? And why was he, you know, the the kind of ripoff version of Captain America, as I imagined he must be? And, and all of those sorts of propulsive mysteries about who these characters were, were the things that interested me in them. Um, And then, of course, the X-Men cartoon series in the early 90s came along, and that became the kind of locus of my X-Men fandom. So not a lot of Nightcrawler there, sadly. Oh, yes, I know. He was going to be a central character in Pride of the X-Men, but, like, Mm -hmm. it didn't work out that way. That is fascinating. I love hearing people's, like, weird stories about discovering comics, because there's, like, a certain generic comics origin story, and I've just found that when we've had people on the on the pod asking to talk about their origin stories everybody's origin stories have not i mean there's been a few of us that have had more generic origin story but everybody's story is unique and i love hearing people's different ones i love that thing about the poster that's so cool so you grew up in the you grew up in the u.s though right like not in the uk yeah i did i i grew up in america uh was born in albany and lived there until i was 17 and then i came over to st andrews uh which is just on the east coast of scotland about an hour and a half north of where I live now uh, and did my undergrad degree there. And I've been in the UK ever since. Ah, yeah. I was just curious because, yeah, we've had some discussions on the pod in the past, like about the Marvel UK stuff. And so, yeah, I was like wondering if like you would have been sort of encountering it through that or whether you would have been encountering it through the American context. I, I know that my best friend made a point of reading Excalibur when it came out when he was a kid. Um, mm-hmm. And, you know, he, he, was really excited about an X book that was set in in the UK. Although ultimately, I think he was more of an X Factor guy. Ah, uh, yeah. Well, fair enough. We've all got our interests. But um, are you sort of caught up on the series now? Like, have you caught up on the issues prior to this one? Yeah, yeah. I've read uh, up to this issue and a little ways past it at this stage. Okay, okay. That's good. So we know that kind of stuff that we can kind of touch on and not mm-hmm. and not. <laughs> but yeah, we try not about to spoil spoilers anyway. Yeah, I know. We, we try not to do spoilers since we're kind of a read along podcast. So we try to like keep things focused on the present, but sometimes we we touch forward a little bit. But we we try to keep it focused. It was always the most most critical element of my student uh, evaluations was that I didn't care enough about spoilers, and I would <laughs> mercilessly give away plot details because you know, we're studying this stuff. Who cares? Oh my uh, goodness, I've never even thought about that in the context of a classroom. I have not cared about spoilers, but that is really funny. Um, okay, let's do our issue summary, and then we'll get back to some first impressions and get into our convo about this specific issue so as always a humongous thanks to the lovely loyal listeners reading along with the pod i know i always apologize for the plot summary but this is another issue where we have a lot happening and i think it's worth recapping before we get into the weeds of 
why this is happening and if it's any good, so let's do that. The issue begins with us flying over London with a Captain Britain-esque character called Crusader X. He sees military helicopters converging on a tube station and swoops down to check it out. He finds Scotland Yard's Di Thomas and Alessand and Alastair Stewart of Weird Happenings investigating Excalibur's train. Excalibur's nowhere to be found, but they do find a bunch of weird costumes and a photograph of Nightcrawler, who in this dimension is a wanted Prussian agent. They fear Prussian Nightcrawler is there to do some dastardly deed at the upcoming World Leaders Summit. So Crusader X uses an ability to track auras to locate Nightcrawler and takes off after him. Meanwhile, back in the 616, Kitty awakes in Brian Braddock's London house in Merlin Mews to find Courtney Ross serving her breakfast. Except, as we have to keep reminding you, because the comic <laughs> does not, she is not Courtney Ross, she is the evil Satur 9. Kitty rages and cries about getting separated from the team in the last issue, not knowing if she'll ever see them again. Satur Courtney comforts her and assures her in a way that's absolutely not ominous at all that Kitty will never be alone. Back in the world of Crusader X, technically Earth 2122, we're introduced to Jean Grey, arriving at Xavier's school for gifted youngsters. As she arrives, she's attacked psychically by Mastermind. She fights him off with Will Learn, a little help from our own Rachel. We also learn that Mastermind's powers are being boosted by that dimension's Emma Frost under the direction of Shadow King, who in this dimension is the leader of the Hellfire Club. Emma is killed by psychic feedback and Mastermind is punished by Shadow King. We also learn the reason for this attack, that this dimension's Iron Man has enlisted Shadow King to commandeer Jean Grey in a bid to disrupt the World Leaders Summit. In this dimension, the US is still a colony of the UK. Iron Man is a terrorist slash freedom fighter who's not happy with that state of affairs. At this point, we jot back to the 616 where a bunch of confusing stuff happens. The crime lord Vixen is meeting with Nigel Frobisher. She quickly realizes it's not a friendly meeting, but it doesn't matter because Jamie Braddock is there. Jamie turns Vixen into an actual fox, then turns Nigel into Vixen. This will allow them to take over Vixen's criminal empire on behalf of Saturnine. Back on Earth 2122, Jean is attacked again and gets transformed into Shadow Queen. Once again, Rachel feels Jean's pain. She fights with Kurt about helping Jean, then they're attacked by Crusader X. Rachel flies off on her own, and Crusader X flies off with Kurt. Rachel finds a mortally wounded Jean Grey inside a crater, tries to save her, and fails. The issue ends with a very angry Rachel swearing revenge on the Hellfire Club. Okay, we're getting repetitive about saying things like, this was a confusing issue, and this was a dense issue, and the non-Alan Davis art affected comprehension, but all of those things are once again true. Let's start with some first impressions, starting with you, Martin. So I would love to lead you into the first impression question without saying, like, tell us why this issue is not so great. Um, but I already said that. So I'll backtrack a little and say, is this a good comic? What did you think of it? What's your first impression? So I, I think I do feel more warmly about it than, than most of you guys do. And, and part of that is because I... I'm not sure I actually have a barometer in my mind for what a good single issue of mm. a continuity comic is, uh, because I don't point. necessarily expect narrative satisfaction. I don't even necessarily expect total coherence if I know there's going to be more coming along. And and so far within Excalibur, especially within the cross-time caper, I don't even expect to know where I am at the start of an issue because we've been jumping around different <laughs> universes. And I think this one actually does a really good job of setting up the world you're in with those first early panels of exposition. Like a, a continuity comic asks its reader to do a lot of work, to, to know a lot of stuff coming into it. And a comic that starts itself in a new version of the world takes some of that burden away from the reader. It says, okay, here's a bunch of exposition. This is where we are. This is the, the value set. And some of the writing, I think, is is 
pretty nicely handled in there. The the Crusader X ruminations about how there are few places in, there's nowhere in the New World and few places in the Old that compare to London, give you that sense of his ideology, his sort of mm-hmm. British-centric imperialist view of the world in just a couple quick lines of dialogue and sets him up as a more confident, kind of more aggressive version of, of the the kind of fumbling Brian that we've known. Yeah, there's an interesting thing, which we're not really going to talk about until the next issue, but like even here we have the, so on the second page of the comic, the irony of course being that many of these self-same people who cheer my exploits as champion of the realm wouldn't be seen dead with me in my civilian identity. Mm -hmm. So there's actually a thing going on here with him where he might be a racialized character and we're not really sure what happens with it, but it's interesting that that gets brought up. Just I just wanted to bring that up in terms of like situating this character because like there's this thing where he is situated as this confident imperialist character, but we have like sort of a hint that like mm-hmm. something is going to be complexified there and I won't say whether that gets satisfactorily handled or not, but at least it's an interesting detail to point out right away. <laughs> sure. Sure. I mean, yeah, other 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 thoughts, Martin? Go ahead. Well, I, I think one of the things that, that seems to put everyone off this is some of the art style. And I, I don't think there's any getting around the fact that the further you get from either a lantern-jawed traditional male hero or a sexy lady in a bikini, the weaker Wozniak's penciling seems to be. Like, he, <laughs> yeah. he's, he does his worst work on most of the main characters of this series. And that's a problem. Like, if... If you had him writing, as he does in, in other parts of his career, he wrote Hawk and Dove, you know, two big burly men who look almost identical. Perfect for his style. He'll do a great job with that. Whereas <laughs> here we have a predominantly female super team and then Nightcrawler, who, who doesn't look like other alpha male superheroes. And all of them are bad. And there's there's kind of no way to pass that. Um, they, they all have strange, distorted faces. They, they are all shown from bizarre angles. I, I don't quite know what to do with it. Yeah, I mean, I want to talk about Wozniak in this opening section and sort of situate him historically a little bit. And I had us all share around and we'll, we'll, we'll post it to the show notes as well and in our social, but um, an interview that he did, you know, which is one of his only interviews that he did about his style from, from back then. And it was linked on the Comics Journal site. And he was talking about working on Excalibur, which is what was his new like breakout gig because he did quite a few issues of Excalibur. And he did say there that he really liked drawing Megan and struggled mightily drawing Nightcrawler. And I thought that was interesting because it sort of aligns with a lot of what you're saying that, you know, something about his style and kind of the weight of his style and kind of the squareness and the blockiness of his style. I do see him really struggling with sort of both the quiet character moments and also sort of the unique physicality of a character like Nightcrawler. But um, Andrew and Mav, other other first impressions from you? It's, I I mean, I don't love this issue. I don't love Crusader X. I don't hate it. It's not, it, it just feels like such a diversion from where the story had been going. And and Marty, you said that you're sort of used to that with Excalibur, the lack of continuity. And I agree to an extent, but I feel like the flaw with this story is I think Wozniak is spinning up. I think Claremont is trying to continue his story. And I think this issue wants me to care about this storyline, this arc in a way that it hasn't earned or made me mm-hmm. like it, it's not wacky enough. It's not like um, it's not like Warlord or the Billy the Kid arc where you mm-hmm. sort of dump me into this crazy world and anything can happen. This is dark and gritty and it, feels like it wants to be 
a dark and gritty comic that I don't really it, it, it feels wrong for Excalibur. It's dark, it's sudden, and I it, it doesn't feel earned. And then since it doesn't stick yeah. around after two issues from now, it feels it, like I it feels like a weird diversion that feels almost like another book. Like even Wozniak's art, I you know I I don't like I don't love it as much, particularly on this on this run. Um, I like to talk and dub. Like Marty was saying, I liked um, so, um he does some interesting Teen Titan stuff. I don't love it, and it feels in and out here, and like it like it goes away, and I'm like, oh, that was weird. It almost seems like the wrong creative team just showed up temporarily. Yeah, and then like you know, there's certain things. I mean, I do like the one panel where he has Nightcrawler do like a bunch of different acrobatic poses while he's fighting Crusader X, and I was like, you did a nice job there, but it's just that like it's a lot of the facial reactions and stuff that like just make it really distracting in this book that relies so much on character. But I like what you're saying, Mav, that it's not crazy enough because I think that that was maybe sort of one of my because it's not that I hate this issue. I'm just sort of like a bit yawn because again, it's like for this as a choice of world, it's just like slightly different from the regular world, right? It's just like a grain different. And then we see stories that we kind of are already mostly familiar with playing out again. And it's just, it's a bit of an odd choice. And I want to talk about why that choice was made. But Andrew, a chance for you to do first impressions. What do you want to talk about right off the bat? I think for me, like as we've been doing Cross Time Caper, I've been kind of cultivating like a, a system of evaluation unique to that. And it's gotten to yeah. the point where I'm not thinking about story arc. I'm thinking about how evocative the world they visit is and the sort of imaginative potentials that are created there. And I agree with Martin. I think there's I think there's a lot happening here that could really work. Um, but I also agree with, with you and Mav that um, Wozniak, in particular, his facial expressions aren't up to the task. Like, I, I think he can do mood very well. Like, there's some pretty cool looking scenes here. Um, and he does bodies pretty well. Um, but again, a certain type of body that I think maybe yeah. isn't ideal for Excalibur. <laughs> yeah, I do like the difference between <laughs> Rachel's costume some, s suddenly has like the plunge neck. And I'm just like, what happened there? That's not her <laughs> costume. But I mean, that's fine. <laughs> it's definitely a choice that you notice. Um, well, let's talk about that that thing that you brought up, Martin, which is like, what do we expect from a serialized comic? And what do we expect from, you know, an incontinuity comic? And this is a particularly interesting context, as you mentioned, right? Because this cross time caper where they're jumping between dimensions and everything so what does continuity even mean within a space like this where we could go anywhere at any moment right and yet mm -hmm. we still have this ongoing story so it's sort of juggling a lot here but can you tell us a little bit more about that because it's interesting too because this relates to your story about developing sort of a love for comics and how you had this like smattering of comics so i mean what's your view on how we read continuity stories like we have this idea that we have to read it as a complete story and there's like a lot of like completest pressure like when you're a fan of the marvel universe in particular mm -hmm. i mean that's kind of what the whole handbook is like about right and yet you're bringing up it's interesting because you can engage with just the handbook and not necessarily know the stories and i think a lot of people have that experience even now online certainly when i was first becoming a fan i did a lot of sort of reading wikipedias of characters and not necessarily reading the comics just to get caught up on the lore right absolutely but so, yeah, you, you end up yeah, having to yeah, yeah you do i know and like it can be you can get lost mm -hmm. in a wiki wormhole that way but yeah so like can you talk a little bit more about that about sort of your expectations of continuity storytelling like are you sort of a completist do you mind sort of jumping in and out um i've i've gone through different phases over the course of my life so the closest i ever got to being a completist was with like 2000s era batman and and i did spend a lot of time kind of reading around that and found you know a lot of it didn't really reward 
deep reading. Like there are plenty of those stories I didn't need to bother with and I could, I could stick with the strong moments and that was fine. And, and I feel like that's, that's sort of a, an element to a lot of, at least my approach to comics. And I suspect many people's that there are things you revisit. There are things you go back to. I think this comes up in, uh, in some of the text for the, the Claremont run. I was just sort of reading through the Claremont run website a bit today. You talk about the way that we focus in, in kind of our collective memory on some of the big Claremont stories, things like God loves man kills or, or the Dark Phoenix mm. saga. And I think that's because they stand out as these kind of strong moments of, of work, like almost strong moments in that Bloomian sense where, where they stand above the, the rest of the text and are, are sui generis. And so you can, you can think of the X-Men of that era as Dark Phoenix, and you're not right, but you're not completely wrong either. Mm. Um, and I think with a, a comic like this, mm. it's calling on those sorts of strong moments. So you can draw on your knowledge of other characters. So when you see Shadow King show up as the leader of the Hellfire Club, you kind of go, oh, I don't think that's right, but also it kind of makes sense. It fits with some of what I know about that character. The, the great moment of this for me is when Iron Man shows up and you think, mm. yes, I completely buy alternate universe Tony Stark as being a ruthless Machiavellian villain. Like that, that makes complete sense to me and i only need to see him for a couple panels and it fits with most of what i know about tony stark and the lines of dialogue that establish him as a an american revolutionary kind of fit in the rest of it and that that i thought was some of the best storytelling within it just in terms of using the few things i already knew about that character I didn't need to know much that tony stark is kind of an arrogant guy who will will do everything himself and who will go to extreme lengths to accomplish his goals <laughs> I really liked that it was Sons of Liberty specifically. Yeah, just just yeah. knowing their place in American history and making them this British terrorist organization. Or sorry, yeah, terrorist organization to the British. That mm-hmm. was kind of cool. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I know it's a particularly like interesting potential plot thread that we have going on there for sure. I mean, in terms of though, you brought up earlier that the question of like, is this a good single issue of a comic? And is that like a worthy question of asking? Like, I mean, is this a better comic if we consider it in the larger context? Or is it better for us just to consider this as a single issue of a comic? I think that's a good question for the podcast in general, since we're doing mm-hmm. this single issue kind of deep dive kind of a thing. Like, is that a meaningful question to you? Like, should we be evaluating this within a larger context or like does it make sense to think about that imaginary reader picking this up off the stands and are they going to be satisfied with this as a single issue of a comic i mean from, from my perspective i think i would have been fascinated by this as a kid and i would have wanted to read a lot more about crusader x and then been disappointed when there was only one more yeah you know <laughs> that sort of surely we could have a mini series we could branch off we could do a what if like that that's what this reminds me of actually and maybe that's a way to think about it marvel's what if imprint specialized in doing one-issue stories, and they were often brilliant one-issue stories because they gestured at a much wider world, and you kind of wanted to know more, but you also got your satisfaction within the bounds of that single comic. Yeah, I can sort of imagine that too. I mean, I sort of had a similar experience to you in that I had a sort of a smattering of comics growing up and I always wanted to learn more and never had the complete story. And I can kind of see having this comic at 12 and just being like, I do want to know more about all of this stuff. But yeah, so that's interesting. I don't know. Other thoughts on that? Like, I mean, is this comic better on its own or is it better or worse if we consider it within the larger context? Like, are we being unfair to it because we're thinking of the larger context? I think there's a like a sort of easy, obvious argument that would suggest yes, just because the other comics we're comparing it to are like Claremont and Davis firing on all cylinders. Uh, And like, if this was the first Excalibur comic I ever read, I I think I would think much more of it. 
than I do sort of as a follow-up. Yeah, that's mm-hmm. fair. Yeah, I don't know. Any thoughts on that, Mav? Yeah, I don't know that there is a... The larger context thing is a weird question because Marty and Anna, you both talked about starting comics and just being invested in reading Wikipedia, right? Like, or whatever, or Wikia yeah. or fandom or whatever. Like, I need to catch up. That wasn't an option for me when this story started. I mean, I learned about Captain Britain through the official handbook to the Marvel Universe. That's that's what I had going in Dex Colliver. And that's great, except that exactly the problem Marty said, if you get into this and you're like, oh, this Crusader X thing is interesting, I want to learn more, there's no comic book convention you can go to and pick up the rest of the issues. You know, there is no more. It's just a weird one-off of an idea that I don't think is the same as a what-if, because what-ifs mostly are self-contained. Even the ones that launch Mm. onto their own series, like Spider-Girl, the original story is like, this is intended to be a closed story, and this is written like it's an open-ended story like it's it's got a very sherlock holmesy vibe to it which i actually think is really interesting and is going to go nowhere because it's just these two issues and that's it you know so well maybe let's talk about what it's doing for the ongoing story then and talk about this revisiting the dark phoenix saga which you know is a choice that this comic made so we've talked in previous episodes about the value of alternate universe stories and doppelganger dramas and we've proposed lots of different things that can make these stories valuable like an opportunity to see characters in a new light by recontextualizing them or the opportunity for familiar characters to learn about themselves through interactions with those recontextualized doubles so what's going on in this story. So we discussed Rachel watching an alternate Jean Grey die again in Excalibur number 17 and we're getting another version of that here. So even if you haven't read number 17 if you know Rachel, you know her backstory you know that she's watched her family die yeah. (laughs) So this is like the third time minimum that she's like sort of gone through the story. You know. So what does this story offer us or what does it offer Rachel like in terms of a narrative of loss or character development? Why does it retell Jean Grey's story of corruption and why does it retell the story of loss for Rachel? Do you want, I'll give you a first crack at it, Martin. I don't have a good answer in terms of what it does for Rachel, but I think I have a good answer in terms of what it does for the audience. And and that is that it it provokes a couple of different things. One one of them for me is like the motivating question of why is Rachel here? If one of the foundational kind of tenets of the the X world is that the Phoenix Force is this huge destructive thing and it's too powerful to exist alongside these other things, Saturnine is hunting her down for that reason. What is she doing here? It mm-hmm. is, I think, an important question. And it's not clear to me that Rachel herself has a, a good answer to that. And by, by sending her back in to experience the, the kind of fate of the previous Phoenix a, a number of times, I wonder if one of the things that it's doing is is trying to get to an answer to that question. What is the role of the Phoenix in this space? Mm. And I think there's also another specific narrative thing it's trying to do, which is actually to do with Jamie Braddock. Because you've talked before on the pod about the way in which the Phoenix seems to be this trans-universal force. We don't meet Phoenix doppelgangers, precisely. We just have Rachel bump into her mother. And that might be another thing. They've decided the Phoenix is trans-universal. There's only one, so we can't do the normal doppelganger drama. But I think it feels to me, at least, that part of the suggestion is that Jamie Braddock is also kind of trans-universal, and they're they're asking us to, to draw parallelism there, because otherwise it's really hard to seed him as a villain when he exists on another plane and only interacts with them occasionally and in confusing ways that they don't fully understand. Yeah, yeah, we mentioned kind of the trans-dimensional capacity of Jamie when we did issue 19, in which 
we saw him having a doppelganger in the you know the wild wild wheels world and mm-hmm. then but he also exists in the present as kind of controlling that doppelganger as part of his dream that he thinks he's having so yeah there's really something potentially interesting going on with jamie braddock there as that trans-dimensional force and i think that speaks mm-hmm. to his role as well you know a good villain for this series i mean we'll see where that story goes but yeah so i mean with the gene gray story here then i mean i'm gonna ask kind of a dumb question because i didn't really get it so she doesn't actually become dark phoenix here right like she doesn't have the phoenix force in this comic right i don't think so <laughs> it was not clear to me but i mean because it would make sense though that this story would be different because rachel has the phoenix and there's only one yeah that that's how it seemed to me i mean there, there's a point where rachel says i guess the the genetic bond between mother and daughter must cross over between universes and you think, yeah, that's probably not it it's probably the big magic bird <laughs> living inside you that, that handles all these things and yet we have like the scenes with gene where she's like no in my head a bird of fire and i don't i was yeah. very unclear about whether she was getting possessed by phoenix or not and that was an issue for me in terms of comprehending the story anyway andrew you were gonna say I, I can help but not help at all. So at this point in continuity, it's established that the Phoenix Force is kind of in multiple places at once. So it was a part of Madeline Pryor in Inferno. Um, it's probably locked on to 616 Jean Grey a little bit, though she's not fully aware of it yet, depending on who you talk to in X Factor. Um, and as you said, Rachel's got a part of it. But that kind of, as we also said, contradicts the earlier notion that there can only be one Phoenix, which has kind of been established in Excalibur at this point across the Omniverse. So there can only be one, but it can be in multiple forms occupying multiple different people it it's it's a mess being treated a little bit like the force or something where it sort of flows through this family in sort of weird ways but we're not like really sure how it works that is actually established in classic x-men number 43 in which gene has a conversation with death in which death says that the phoenix force is specifically geared to your lineage and will always be drawn to your genetics Mm. oh wow (laughs) <laughs> well, thank you for that. That's a helpful piece of continuity. Well, I mean, Andrew, you've done a lot of work on Dark Phoenix Saga. Why do you think that we're retelling the story here? And do you find value in the retelling as it's retold here? I, I do think that what we're at least trying to do is um, similar to how I described um, Kitty and Mojo Mayhem, where it gave her the opportunity to witness the X-Men sacrifice, right? Through the kids. This allows Rachel to be embroiled directly in the Dark Phoenix Saga. This allows mm-hmm. her to fight the Dark Phoenix villains and to witness the death of her mother. So there's a way that it's, it's creating um, a little bit more cohesion Um, but that only works if the story really works and I think one of the things that I butt my head up against is the sort of law of diminishing returns as we've already talked about just constantly killing Rachel's mom just coming back to the Shadow King in a way that the Shadow King is being ramped up in other books thus making Excalibur weirdly beholden to the broader X universe there's a lot of things that Claremont's going to here that he's gone to before Uh, and I, I think that maybe speaks to our earlier discussion on, you know, isolating this issue versus treating it within a broader continuity. I think in a broader continuity, this is a worse issue. Yeah, that's a valid argument for sure. I mean, I do like, we've talked a little bit about the circularity of Rachel's story before. And I like, I there's part of me that really loves that idea that, you know, because she just keeps having to reckon with something about the Phoenix Force that she's sort of denying or some part of herself that's deny, that she's denying, or she's even denying herself part of her grief and rage, you know, because we talked about her having her emotions really sort of locked down and previous issues and stuff and you know being kind of closed off as a way to kind of cope with this tremendous power and to cope with her trauma right and we certainly see her getting very emotional here and letting loose on her emotions or at least having the promise of letting loose on her emotions in the following issue and so yeah I don't know like I mean I can see there being potential to her sort of experiencing these massive traumas as bringing her closer to what she I don't want to say what she needs to become but you know some of the interior conflicts that she's having but also what the nature of the Phoenix Force is right because we think back to Excalibur number 17 
2018 where we see her teaming up with Rach or with Megan rather to like bring people and an entire world back to life using the Phoenix Force and she's also using the Phoenix Force to propel them across dimensions there are all these wild and crazy things that she's doing with the Phoenix Force that she's only able to do in select moments and you know is kind of avoiding some of those larger implications of her power so I mean is that a way to read this that it's sort of bringing her to some of the conflicts she's going to have to navigate if she's going to realize the broader implications of this power I think that works for me that sounds that sounds kind of cool actually I like it I don't know if the comic like pays that off but I like I like it as an idea because it just like because I think there's just a thing like when we're talking about sort of goals and execution we can't know what the goals were and we do have this radical art change so that's always going to be a struggle in terms of figuring out how this comic might have been different if it was drawn by collaborator Davis and we've talked to previously that we have a suspicion that the nature of their relationship was probably Claremont delivering maybe looser scripts and Davis is doing a lot of kind of work there so when we're having a different artist we're just sort of feeling those gaps a little bit more but I'm just like trying to figure because I mean obviously he made this choice to return to the story and he's made the choice twice now to do this with Rachel and tell the story again so like I mean there must be a reason and I don't think it's just a completely random reason I mean this is a choice that was made I mean, if, if I can ask a naive question here, because I don't know the history behind the, the kind of the relationship here. A couple episodes back, you were talking a bit about the, the Burn retcon of the, the Dark Phoenix saga and the kind of arguments between Claremont and Burn over that. And I was wondering if, if part of this might just be Claremont trying to reassert the primacy of his vision of Dark Phoenix in some way or his ownership over that moment by returning to it again and again. Yeah, that's interesting. Thoughts, Andrew? That's definitely something that he was, a project that he was very interested in at this time period. And again, I would point to classic X-Men 43, which kind of undoes the burn retcon with the vague kind of excuse that it might just be a vision Jean's having in the last moment of her life. But he makes it really clear in that issue that um, um, Jean and the Phoenix are a merged entity, not separate distinct identities. It's not the Phoenix impersonating Jean. So, I mean, it's at least consistent with his MO. Oh, it's, it's also problematic in that we are very much reaching a point in X-Men continuity where after 14 years at this point, I think, Claremont does not have the tight control. They, like things are things are getting away from him because there are so many books and they're moving to a crossover land and there are other creators and yeah. he can't just decide how the Phoenix Force works. He He's not in charge anymore in that way. X-Factor just has to matter and he can't do anything about it. So I don't know. We're moving away from authorial control into editorial control in a weird way that I don't know that that answer is compelling or either. Yeah, and I mean, that gets us right back to that question of like, is this a satisfying issue on its own? Or is this some sort of fighting with other creators for control of this like <laughs> 10 year old story? And like, what is actually going on here? And can we enjoy the issue on its own? Or do we kind of need that? And do we want to be caught up in that? Right? Yeah, I mean, I was going to ask sort of a basic question about, you know, we've been talking about the like big themes and everything. Does the emotional part of the story for Rachel sort of work in this comic as it's depicted? Do we feel for her here? Was it affecting? I'm thinking in particular about the last couple of pages where she's sort of holding Jean Grain's body and Jean is dying and then we have Rachel's sort of explosive anger on the final page and I have some thoughts about how this scene is rendered but I wanted to put it to the rest of you and maybe we'll start with you again Martin guest privilege did you find sort of an emotional hook with this issue like was it affecting on an emotional level um not not necessarily in the in the kind of pathos driven you know I'm holding my dead mother in my arms way like it it's cribbing from the the kind of cliched vision it, it, it's reminiscent of the moment in Platoon uh, near the end, you know, holding the dead sergeant in your arms, mm -hmm. or, or I mean, the Pieta, which is the, the kind of yeah. er 
image yes, of that, obviously. It's tried to do Pieta. Um, yeah. And, you know, it, it, whenever you're invoking the kind of great tradition of, of art and representation, if you don't hit it exactly right, you make yourself look cheap and part of what's going on there. Yeah, it d- didn't do much for me. There's such yeah. a great one I just have to point out in the Miami Vice episode. I think it's the Miami Vice episode, Evan. <gasps> they, like, do, like, a, like, freeze on, like, that pose at the end, and it is uh-huh. so self-indulgent and the most wonderful thing ever, and I highly encourage everyone to check it out. You're going to make me dig that up for the YouTube video. And, and, <laughs> oh, no, I can, I can send that to you, Mav. I can send that to you, Mav. Yeah, if you've got, if you've got the link, because I, I, I know exactly what you're talking about, but I'm like, I don't know if I just have that. <laughs> I can get a still of that for you. We should note, of course, that that Pieta reference is very specific to the Dark Phoenix saga. That, that That's an iconic Dark Phoenix cover. Yeah, it, I have a problem with it. <laughs> um, I have a, oh, so a couple of issues first off we talked about this already but she's seen her mom die again in her arms like a couple weeks ago like it's not for her you know like in real this is almost mm-hmm. not weird anymore for her which by the way should be traumatic and weirdly affecting but I don't think that's the story we're doing I think I think it's a retread for some reason rather than uh oh my god how many times do I have to see my mom die that would be interesting but it's not that it's just a Oh, I've seen Jean Grey die. I must avenge her, except for this is a Jean that I don't even really know. And not even as much as the weird Jean from Warlord Planet, whom I know for some reason. Like, I don't feel a connection between them. And also, because Wozniak is doing Wozniak, the emotional undercurrent of trying to do the Pieta scene is very... It, it's it's hurt by the fact that he's he wants us to, like, have feel this pathos but he also really wants us to see both rachel and jean's boobs and it's so bad (laughs) (laughs) it's so bad i'm just like looking at the page right now and i'm just like fixated on the boobs they're just like so round and he does crotch cross hatching on jeans and i'm just like what are you oh yeah that there's little flames coming off of rachel's individual breasts Oh. That's a lot. It's yeah. a lot. And I'm not anti boob. It's but it's but there's an odd choice here. There's Me a neither. choice that was made. Yeah. That, yes. <laughs> Having this much boob and this type of boob in this particular image, I think is maybe not the most productive choice you could have made. <laughs> right. Yeah. Right. right. Same... Entirely fair. Yeah. <laughs> I'm in the same boat as everyone else. I felt nothing when, when looking at this image. And God, the thing you that cold, it, cold human, Andrew. Well, the thing that it made me think about was like other, like my immediate reaction is maybe I just can't be fooled by this again. You know what I mean? Like I'm not feeling for Rachel anymore because it's happened too much. But then I think about End of Grays, which deeply impacted me. And I was like, damn it, you got me again. Oh, and maybe oh. that's Bacallo because Bacallo is a fantastic mm-hmm. illustrator. So I honestly don't know, but there's something here that's not working for me. Yeah, even I'm looking at it now as as a double splash page and there's actually there's a little mini panel just on the previous page which shows both of their faces in close-up and where there's actually some differentiation and Jean's eyes are kind of wide open and rolling back in her head and that works so much better than anything on the final page you know just that tight emotional focus which doesn't show up in a lot of other places and then the one beneath Jean seems to be laughing like the Joker so you know maybe there's just not that much facial control well I mean can we talk about some of the finer details of this story though too if we want to like I mean what details of the story are changed and does it matter or is it exactly the same story because I guess it's back to the doppelgangers question right if we're going to retell a story with doppelgangers of characters is it helping us understand the characters better like I mean if it's not really necessarily helping us understand 
understand Rachel better. Maybe it is or isn't, isn't, but is it helping us understand the Dark Phoenix saga better? Like, how is it recontextualizing that? What are some of the differences in the story that we have here? I think one of the big ones is it's using the Hellfire Club to sort of, um, I'm going to script the terminology, Matt can correct me. Um, I'm getting over the Shadow King by having him supersede the Hellfire Club. Uh, like, he's such a Put badass over. here. You're trying, Put over, to, you're thank trying you. to do wrestling. Yes. <laughs> I, I did. And it, it was great, right? <laughs> Yeah, it's trying, but it doesn't. So, okay, wrestling terminology, wrestling 101 for our listeners, who I'm sure that's why you're listening to the Excalibur <laughs> podcast. Uh, <laughs> when you're doing that, when you're when you're when you're going to use an established character to put over another character, when you have Brock Lesnar beat the undertaker point of doing this is that the fans go oh my god i didn't care about brock lesnar but he just beat the undertaker at wrestlemania he's a badass i'm gonna pay attention but what this requires is it requires you to care about the person that is being sacrificed you have to care about the undertaker and you have to then follow up with doing something with the character you just put over and this does neither of those things because in the context of reading excalibur i like i'm not going to come back to the shadow king in excalibur i am in other in other x-men books but it's going to be a very different shadow king and i'm not really caring about excalibur i mean about the hellfire club as they appear here it's a sacrifice of characters I don't know to improve a character that I also don't know. So it tries to do it, but like the extra dimensionalness of it sort of, it hurts the effect. Yeah, that's fair. Well, let's move to talking about kind of the antagonists in a little bit more depth because we have so many antagonists in this comic. So we've got a whole bunch of stuff going on, including some important world building back in the 616 involving villains. And I want to talk about all of these things. Um, just for our listeners, we're going to talk more extensively about Shadow King in our next episode, where we're going to have a specialist on representations of Arab caricatures and um, Muslim characters in comics to help us unpack some of the some of the issues involved with his representation. Um, we can discuss it here too briefly if we want, but uh, just to put a pin in that, that we are going to have an episode sort of dedicated to some of those topics um, next week. But so we already talked about Iron Man being a villain and sort of some of the stuff that that's an interesting choice. And we've got Satter Courtney and Kitty here. This is going to be an important part of the story moving forward. We've got this whole thing with Vixen and Nigel and Jamie. So guest privilege, which villain are you most interested in talking about, Martin? I, we, we've sort of touched on the Iron Man moment, which was my standout favorite of them. But mm -hmm. I think the, the one that feels the strangest move for the comic at this stage is the Saturnine grooming Kitty element of it. Yes. Mm -hmm. Which feels like it comes almost out of nowhere. They're trying to do a lot of work to make us see Kitty as vulnerable enough for this to be credible. Um, her, her kind of heightened emotionalism where she she's all of a sudden so upset about her intangibility and is screaming <laughs> and, and angry. And yeah, in, in yeah. a way that feels very un-Kitty. Um, although, you know, one of her most famous panels is having a tantrum and storming out of the, <laughs> the expansion, but it's an earned tantrum there. And this, this feels particularly strange, but it's, it's setting up that thing that, you know, she wants a grounding. She's a, a kid without a, a family, without any roots. And then Saturnine Courtney is going to be there to provide those roots, but it's done in like two pages and I, I don't buy it 
frankly. It, it just feels like it would take her a lot longer to be that vulnerable. Like, Kitty would be trying to read Richards her way towards finding a way to get Excalibur back, not moping in her bedroom. Yeah, that's an interesting read of it. I mean, what goes on with why do we... Well, let for our listeners who may not be sort of aware of some of these trends, like, when we say grooming, what are we talking about here? Like, what is the context for that? And, like, anybody who wants to take a stab at defining that, I think Andrew or Mav, you're probably both capable of doing that. Uh, in this context, um, I don't, I'm not really sure. It's a little more tricky. Um, grooming basically means sort of um, apprenticing or mentoring someone for dubious purposes. Uh, obviously, it's being discussed extensively in comics right now regarding Warren Ellis, who we're going to be talking about. Yeah, I know. I'm looking forward to <laughs> continually justifying talking about his comics when we get to them. But yes, we'll, we'll deal with that when it comes. Yeah. So I, I think what it represents in the context of like broader Excalibur that we've seen so far and that, that I kind of like, this Saturnine thing has been hanging uh, over this universe for literally a year. Uh, so we're finally seeing that that trap starting to spring by having her get close to Kitty. There's a real kind of like um, predatory vibe taking shape that I really like. I, I, I agree completely with Martin that this scene is a little too abrupt. I would love for it to have been drawn out, but I do like a lot of the things that it does. I, like I love that um, Kitty doesn't sense Courtney Ross, that Courtney Ross actually blushes, which is wow, deep character there uh, for Saturnine pretending to be Courtney. Uh, she would have that like backstory down. <laughs> Pat and I really love it's just a small point I love that we're calling attention to the trope of a character being redressed in comics and instead of just not commenting on it at all being like holy shit someone redressed me this is creepy as hell what does this mean I gotta get out of here um, and I love that Kitty gets to be the one to do that because that's kind of how I feel like she should operate in comics all the time I mean what about we're gonna talk more about the sexual components of this but we're certainly having it brought up with the redressing and you know some of those aspects of this year I'm just curious about why this has been a story that is I'm wondering why this is a story that they keep going back to with Kitty like I mean this was an element of sort of the Kitty Emma Frost thing in the past and now we're kind of going back to it here like why is this kind of grooming story so much a part of Kitty's story well because of how Kitty's positioned right so yeah. not only is it I mean it's in the past for Kitty um, with, with Kitty and Emma and even though modern times I mean 2021 times Kitty is written as much older she's in her 20s at least in comics right now her relationship with emma still is recalling that in in her in marauders today right kitty's character is she's a point of view character yes but she was presented very much as a you know you are a very special girl you are das wunderkind that that shows up from her very first appearance so there is implicitly particularly in code era when you can't like do anything queer officially there is an implicit like sexuality of positioning her against a female character and emma frost a courtney ross and then having her corrupted you know it, it's a grooming thing there's no, you cannot escape the sexual connotation even if you do very little in a way that comes that comes across even in a uh, even in a good girl relationship in a relationship with storm it's still there there's always a oh is there something sexual happening here is there something sexual happening here and when you give it a villain like courtney or emma you can explore that and try to do it in a way that is creepy enough to invest the reader but deniable enough to like pass the censors and I feel as though this one fails in a way that I think issue 24 is going to be Kitty's birthday party. Yeah. And that one is a book that I, I find, I think, is very successful at doing it. I think Davis actually draws that one, but that's not why. He does. I think, I think the relationship between Kitty and Satter Courtney 
is explored rather than here's two pages. Let's try to get this. You get it? Get it? She's kind of flirting with her. It's a thing. It's a thing. And then moving on. Like, I think you need to invest in the time to treat it seriously if you want it to be a story that people care about rather than a story that is just a look trope trope hair yeah well i think that this is the moment where the wozniak art like fails the most because we really need to get a sense of the duality of satyr courtney and that is just Mm -hmm. not communicated by the art here like i mean if you were reading this issue you would have no idea that she's saturnine whereas Mm -hmm. like they don't always put they they don't always put the notes about her actually being saturnine in some of the davis issues but he draws her like with enough of sort of a subtle menacing smile that you can kind of infer that everything's not above board whereas like i don't even know if Wozniak knows what he's drawing here because he certainly doesn't communicate any of that subtlety maybe he's not capable of communicating that subtlety with his style I don't know or it could honestly be that he doesn't know I'm not sure but like it's definitely not communicated I don't think he knows I don't think the scripts have mentioned like what we've seen in the books so assuming the scripts are indicative of the books the storyline has not mentioned that she's not really Courtney since like issue five I know it's been a while (laughs) so it's entirely possible that the scripts don't say it and there's no i mean for now later it's gonna matter but for now all that really matters is that you know courtney ross the ice queen is kind of subtly evil like it doesn't actually matter that she's saturnine in the storyline right now other than so much as that she's conniving so i almost feel like the scripts probably don't say it and you probably don't know because if you didn't pick up excalibur in those first four issues you would have no way of knowing and you're not going to have any way of knowing for quite some time yeah 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 i mean i just i i, I don't know like as much as it would be awkward to keep pointing out that she's actually saturnine i'm just like oh man this would have been so weird if you're like a reader and you don't know that because if you didn't have any sense of the menace of this character this just seems like why are we just spending some time in a house with kitty doing laundry this just seems like pointless but um giving her the chance to to explain her position would be another good way to use nigel you know to to give her a little bit of internal monologue about how she's using this idiot dupe to do her dirty work on the one hand while secretly you know plotting something else <laughs> it just gives, gives you a little bit of a chance to to thread that in and instead of again having the nigel element feel kind of almost separate even though it's part of the same grand villainous plan yeah well let's talk about nigel so <laughs> like we've talked about some of the sex swap or gender swap stuff and those things kind of blend together in some of these examples with him before and when we talked about the nigel stuff we talked about him kind of having you know that his misogyny maybe disguises some sort of queer desire and we're not sure whether it's a trans desire we're not sure if it's sort of like a, a sexual desire there's sort of a lot of different things suggested mm-hmm. in the ways that it's been brought up before um is what happens here with him being transformed into vixen is that building productively on that i think this is going to be another case where the visualization of it here perhaps doesn't add a lot but did you have thoughts about that sort of andrew and mav given we've talked about this pretty extensively in the past yeah i think it maybe represents sort of a a deeper immersion uh Mm -hmm. into a queer sexuality even uh at least explored metaphorically i I think i don't know like like i find it kind of problematic in the extent to which nigel is villain coded um but i do think that there's ways in which you could argue that there's still the potential for embodiment from um, readers if they're willing to you know 
have Nigel as their avatar. I mean, it's disappointing visualization of it the way it's not even quite clear, like kind of what happens because we just see him in the distance as Vixen. And then when he's back in the car, he is Nigel, but he's sort of rubbing his feet as though he was just wearing the high heels. And I just am like, there's a piece missing there in terms of, I don't know what this embodiment felt like or looked like because it's just not present in the art. Yeah, I agree with that. Thoughts about that, Mav? Do you think it contributes productively to some of these some of these things about Nigel? We're still trying to make Nigel Frobisher happen. Um, I I, it was hard for me to care in this book because with new artists and I don't like how Wozniak draws Vixen at all and I'm not Mm -hmm. terribly fond of how he draws Nigel so he draws Nigel far too beefcakey and not with kind of those suggestions of femininity that he or at least feminist that he'd had before yeah so it makes me even on this reread 30 years later it makes me just not care about this storyline and not not that i you know and obviously i don't you've heard the, the show before i'm not inclined to care about nigel in general so you know it's like yeah okay maybe you're trying to explore something interesting but this is just two pages that could have been devoted to anything else <laughs> anything yeah else. yeah i mean it's definitely there's problems with the visualization and i don't think this is really what's going on here i think it's more complicated because of the previous issue where nigel takes some joy in his female embodiment at least implicitly through kind of the eroticization of that art. But there is a problematic trans misogynistic trope going on here, potentially at least in which a male character is transformed into a woman as a form of punishment and shaming. And yeah, if you're going to bring up something like that, it needs to get handled with a lot more sensitivity. And I get this was 1990 and culture wasn't as sensitive to those things, you know, across the board as it should have been, but definitely a little bit uncomfortable reading it all these years later. Anyway, did you have thoughts on this Nigel thing, Martin? You didn't get a chance to sort of talk about Nigel Frobisher on any of our previous episodes. And we've been trying to figure out what the heck he does in this series. So if you have thoughts, go ahead. Well, if I had one guess as to to one of the things that's going on with Nigel, is that I would tend to read him in the context of uh, a kind of 1980s version of feminist backlash. The the version of, of kind of power suited, big shoulder pad femininity that is being put forward as desirable and culturally valorized is something that Nigel as a character feels threatened by when we see his first, his, his kind of is it poker or blackjack where Courtney beats him and essentially owns him afterwards. You know, that, that seems to be him trying to mouth off in response to the perception that a woman is exercising a kind of traditionally masculine authority over him. And he, he then becomes entirely subservient. And I think that his desire, I, I would tend to read it more as the desire of, of a kind of a masculine figure who is no longer occupying a hegemonic position. And he sees a woman in the place where he thinks he deserves to be and so his solution is well if i just become a woman you know that that becomes one of the the locuses through which to to see that transformation that is so interesting that you say that, Martin, because I remember asking a question related to that like way, way back. I think when we were talking about probably like Excalibur 9 or something like that, because to me, there was like a fetishization of female power that happens with this character a lot of the time where it's like partly what he's invested in in Phoenix is like, look how powerful she is. It does seem like he wants to appropriate that power that's bound up specifically in types of female characters. And I was really interested in that as sort of an element of what he actually wants here and what some of these transformations are communicating although if we read them as trans that's another really horrible damaging trope about trans women infiltrating female spaces and yeah i don't know this 
Naja character is is just a mess. I really wish that this was an interesting story that we felt comfortable about talking about, and it just seems like it gets worse every time it comes up. Anyway, um, before we like wrap up, can I ask you, Martin? Like, you know, since you are our first guest, that is, we've had guests that have lived in the UK um before, but you're our first guest that sort of lived there for for much of your adult life. Do you have thoughts about sort of the UK context of Excalibur and sort of the convincingness of it, or sort of what version of the UK that we're getting here? Like, as you've been rereading it, as somebody who's lived in various places in the UK for a while now. Do you have sort of any thoughts about that? We've talked about it as being sort of a carnivalesque version of the UK in the past, but then we've also had lots of listeners from the UK who are like, no, 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 there's all these references that Davis brings in and everything, and it's very sort of genuine in its sort of UK-ness. And I was wondering if you had thoughts about that. I, I feel like it fades in and out. There are certain issues where it's extremely prominent. So like in Mojo Mayhem, where you have Kitty going up to Edinburgh, there, there's a lot of little details that, that feel appropriate that that feel well observed and there's also an issue coming up i think where megan and brian go to a pub that brian used to go drinking in all the time oh i'm excited about that one yep i I really enjoy that one and it's it's very nicely observed kind of portrait of of british drinking culture uh, we do have a uk we have a uk guest on tap for that one too so that's a good one that you brought up um so yeah i think there are definitely moments where it comes to the fore uh because so much of it is also during cross time caper the the britishness is often inflected through these kind of heightened versions so you get the the billy the kid story with its kind of super fantasy version of the uk you get the the crusader x version which is more the kind of you know alan moore v for vendetta version of the uk it feels like but but there's yeah it's it's there throughout but i don't feel like you need to have access to it to really to to appreciate it i think it's just another layer you can you can get something out of the comics especially certain ones yeah, it's such an interesting question because, I mean, I do think it would read so different to somebody, you know, who grew up in the UK that's like reading it in that context versus like how we're reading it. Because I think the, you know, UKness, I'm saying UKness because they do Scotland and, and England as well, but I, but uh, just that it reads like as an exoticism, I think, to readers outside of that context, whereas it reads to like a pop culture, at least inflected familiarity to readers from other contexts. And yeah, I'm just always interested in that aspect of it. And it's not something that we've talked about enough on the podcast, but we will be talking about more. Any final Final thoughts, things that we are desperate to talk about that we didn't get to. We don't have a Sword Strokes letters page this week, so we're not doing that. But if anybody has anything that they're desperate to talk about to get off their chest before we leave this issue forever in the past, (laughs) do so now or forever hold your peace. I like the line, who else but mastermind? And I was like, well, a lot of people actually. (laughs) And a lot of people are actually involved. It's like mastermind and Emma Frost and Shadow King. So I mean, it's like, okay. Martin, if you want to have a final word, it's yours. Uh, No, I I think we've given a lot of attention to this issue already. uh, And and I think have perhaps had a more interesting conversation than it was an interesting read. So... Um, oh, you've come all down on it. You were sort of supporting the issue at the beginning <laughs> of the podcast, Martin. We I mean, talked I, you out I of it. I, yeah, I, I don't hate it. But, you know, I, I think your your criticisms are all completely valid. <laughs> Take Excalibur. Find a pool of calm water. Throw the sword into it. 
Okay, we will wrap things up there. Martin, is there anything that you would like to plug for our listeners? I know that you have some really interesting writing about X-Men that like people can possibly find online and we can certainly link. But if there's anything you want to talk up, go ahead. Yeah, so I mean, they can try to find it. I think it's in, in one of those delightful edited collections that mm-hmm. gets published at a price point that only libraries can afford. So good luck with that. Um, <laughs> but it's in, in the Blackwell Companion of Film Adaptation, uh, my, my stuff on X-Men. But no, I'm uh, currently at the very early stages of developing a film podcast uh, that will look at kind of different aspects of genre cinema with a production company that was started by a couple of former graduates whom I taught. That'll hopefully be out later (laughs) in the year. Uh, But uh, yeah, still still putting together the the lineup of guests for that. We're going to do our first season on sports films. Uh, underrepresented genres oh i love that i want to listen to it now martin (laughs) (laughs) well i'll link it through for you when we have something to listen to yeah if if you have no if you have no one for any but for any given sunday i want it so bad goon is the best sports film ever (laughs) love and basketball love and basketball yeah love and basketball was on my list any given sunday was on my list so i i don't have people for those yet so i may well come come back to you that would be fantastic (laughs) we're just pitching ourselves yes please 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 well thank you so much for joining us martin well thank you guys i really enjoyed it and uh yeah thanks for having me on next in one week's time we'll be on to episode 23 discussing excalibur number 22 just another reminder that our numbering is completely screwed up because of the mojo mayhem episode which i feel like is appropriate um just mentioning that again i did mention it previously anyway so we're on to episode 23 discussing excalibur number 22 shadows triumphant featuring more crusader x more shadow king and likely a little more griping but as i mentioned we've got a great guest who's going to walk us through some histories of stereotyping caricatures surrounding arab and muslim characters it's going to be a really great discussion in the meantime if you liked what you heard please follow us like and review the podcast wherever you're listening to it or watching it don't forget to check out our fabulous youtube videos which you can find via our website or the box podcast youtube channel as always if you want to chat with us about excalibur or pitch yourself as a guest for a future episode let us know you can reach out via our website goshgollywow.com where we've always got some fun extras and via twitter at goshgollywow where we post daily pages from whatever issue we're reading that week and lots more fun extras thank you andrew and mav for another character building conversation thank you martin for lending us your smarts thank you all for listening and especially Special thanks to Maximilian of Platform Music for our truly epic theme song. Play us out. Yay, we made it. Good. Well done.